No time for guessing games now, Joe. You're in the jam, but I'll stand by you, even though I ought to have my head examined for it. Come on. I won't forget you for this, Tommy. I kind of wish you would. You're a born loser, kid. Welcome back and welcome to Season 2, Episode Lucky 13 of Me and My Friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production. The podcast where we explore all things THE Amazing Spider-Man comic book series. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, oh baby, welcome back. This week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 38, Just a Guy. Named Joe. A tale that brings to an end the 40 issue, including annuals, legendary run of the man who created the visually stunning world of Amazing Spider-Man, the one, the only, Stephen J. Ditko. And Dick Goat is going out the same way he came in, with breathtaking artwork and action, action, action. We've got quite possibly the kookiest Spider-Man comic this side of Spider-Ham as pathetic pugilist Joe Smith becomes a befuddled bruiser and the master of the running cheap shot. We've got Pete and Ned about to come to blows over Betty Brant again and a bounty on the head of the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens that has every man in the city trying to take a swipe at his crown. Somebody tell JJ his dreams have come true. When I say let it go and come on, I mean it. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the Amazing Spider-Man number 38. Just a guy named Joe. Or the tale of the befuddled bruiser. The most comic-y comic book of all. Let's swing! Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs. I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend P. The credits. This issue was written and edited by Smiling Stanley, plotted and drawn for the final time in ASM history by the legend, swinging Steve Ditko, and lettered unfettered by Artie Semek. And this was the July 1966 issue of the. Spider-Man. The cover. The cover is set in a white negative space with THE Amazing Spider-Man in Spidey costume red and blue. And beneath it, Spidey, suited and booted in his classic red and blue, leaping towards us, his legs bent, throwing a left cross, his right arm up and out at his side. To his right in a yellow square with lime green lettering, just a guy named Joe. Beneath his right armpit in a green screen caption box, it reads, Here's Spidey at his fighting best. Beneath this, a red arrow caption box pointing down, and it's shouting. Just wait till you see the offbeat supervillain starring in this ish. He's the prize pussycat of the year. And you know we got action as Spidey is taking on a man in the ugliest costume of villains ever thrown on. Orange helmet, large orange shoulder pads, a black shirt, green sleeves, orange gloves, orange super underwear, and green leggings. He's throwing a double hammer fist down towards the webhead, who's dodged stage right of the small square panel they're in, over the side of a car as the poorly clad villain destroys the fender. Above them, it reads, 
thrills. Next to this, we see Spidey leapfrogging a chimney stack, both legs in front of him as he kicks a goon in SJB suit, in the family jewels with his right foot, and a guy in a goldenrod suit, in the same with his right. Above this, spills. And in the final panel, we see Spidey's back and legs swinging onto the scene. The scene? A gym where the ugly garb villain is knocking a boxer in green trunks clear out of the panel. There's a guy in a gray shirt, SJB Slacks. He's looking over his shoulder towards our hero, a guy in boxer headgear and brown leather gloves, and a black boxer in lime green trunks, and all three of them are ignoring the guy in orange and have dangerous sights set on the webhead. Above them, chills. And below, in a yellow screen caption box. Nuff said. Let's get into it. Page one opens to THE Amazing Spider-Man. Just a guy named Joe. The subtitle of this issue is in a white screen caption box with light blue font. Most page ones give us a huge splash page, usually showing off some action that takes place later on in the comic. Not this one. Directly beneath the subtitle, we get right into the story with a caption box. Our mildly terrific tale opens in a crowded neighborhood gym, where we find a not overly bright habitué named Joe Smith indulging himself in one of his ever-present daydreams. And Joe is a redhead with a ski slope of a nose. He's standing in the middle of the gym in an olive flat cap, olive pants, and SJB blue shirt with his fist up in a boxing pose. He's staring at a picture of a boxer on the wall and doing his best to speak his future into existence. Yes siree, no matter what anyone thinks of me now, I'm gonna be the champ someday. I'm gonna really be somebody. I know it. There are three guys stage right of him and they're laughing hysterically at the idea. A guy in a red polo says it's a good thing Smith knows it because no one else does. A guy in a green sweater jerks his thumb over his shoulder towards Joe, calling him a real panic. Joe, undeterred, tells the men to laugh now because later, they won't be. He walks over to a man in a checkered green blazer, black fedora with purple band, purple pants, and bow tie, gray hair, with a nub of a cigar in his mouth. Joe, removing his hat, calls the man Mr. Tompkins, saying he's been trying to get the man to manage him for months, that he's never going to stop asking until the man says that he will. And Tompkins, finally caving from the harassment, tells Joe that he's gonna do it. He's gonna help the guy, adding that if Joe wants his head handed to him, that's his business. He goes on to say he'll get Joe a match if it will get the kid off his back. Joe, sporting maroon trunks and brown leather gloves, has got his match and is thoroughly clobbered from a left hand that connects with his chin, knocking his head through the top two ropes near one of the corners of the ring as the crowd looks on, completely unsurprised and uninspired by the results. A guy watching the green fedora says, well, that takes care of that. <laughs> Matter-of-factly, nobody's surprised about this turn of events, but blamed if this is the end of Joe Smith. Next, Joe Smith tries the wrestling game with very similar results. Joe, now in olive boots and lime green chunks, has been quite literally tossed feet overhead, arms wide, over the top rope of a different squared circle. The white-haired wrestler, obviously Ric Flair, who's launched Joe shouts, Hey, you wasn't supposed to fall out of the ring for another 10 minutes! Joe, in midair, goes Flash Thompson immediately, shouting that he must have slipped as a dapper man in the crowd screams, What a bum! But his manager, Tommy Tompkins, felt a twinge of pity for the game Joe Smith 
and so. Three opens back in the gym to Joe pumping iron, curling barbells, and the kid may not know how to use his hands team, but blamed if he doesn't have the muscles. With his best 60s four pack, he's gripping a barbell pole that weighs 35 pounds alone, and he's got a 35 pound plate on each side, along with a pair of 10s and 5s, so he's curling 135 pounds. That's nothing to sneeze at, but he's wearing a dejected look on his face as Tompkins puts a hand on his shoulder. Tompkins says the fight game isn't for Joe, that the guy isn't tough enough, that he doesn't have a killer instinct. Translation? You can't win, Rock! Still, supportive manager that he is, he says that he landed Joe a job as a costume extra in a TV movie. Two guys looking on from the ring behind them add their input. One says that Tompkins has the right idea because as a fighter, Joe's a great actor. The other doesn't have any clever jokes. He keeps it simple. Joe Smith? What a chump. Word spreads around the gym quick. A guy in a protective boxing helmet jokes that when Rock Hudson hears about Joe becoming an actor, he'll give up. Paraphrase from Wikipedia. Roy Harold Scherer Jr., better known as Rock Hudson, was one of the most famous Golden Age actors to ever stand in front of a movie screen with a career spanning 30 years. After a three-year stint in the Navy during World War II, Hudson moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in acting in 1946 and made his acting debut in the movie Fighter Squadron in 1948 for Warner Brothers. He landed a host of movie roles from 1949 through 1951 before finally receiving his first leading man role in a film titled Scarlet Angel in 1952 and over the next two years established himself as a golden age action hero, but Hudson was no one-trick pony. In 54, he took on his first romantic drama as the leading man in Magnificent Obsession alongside Jane Wyman, a shift that would pay off when in 1959 he starred with the legend Doris Day in the romantic comedy Pillow Talk. The role solidified his superstar status, making him the most popular movie star in the country that year and the second most popular in the following three. You know fashion is important here on me and my friend Pete, and the photogenic Hudson definitely also knew how to throw a blazer on. From 1957 to 1964, he was known as one of the best dressed men in Hollywood. In the 1970s, with his decline as a box office draw, Hudson turned to the small screen with continued success, starring in Macmillan and Wife for six years from 1971 to 1977. Despite all this success, Rock Hudson was no stranger to tragedy. The worst, in my opinion, being the first high-profile American to be diagnosed and die from the scourge of the 80s and 90s, the AIDS disease. And when I say scourge, I mean it. I, and a few other people I know, have lost people to the ether who were sincerely close to them from the disease. Well, loved is a good man. If there's any silver lining in this, Rock Hudson contracting the disease helped remove the stigma that surrounded it. The stigma being that anyone who had AIDS had a moral affliction, which was simply not true. From 1956 to 1977, Hudson amassed in no particular order three Photo Play Awards, four Laurel Awards, six Bambi Awards, four Golden Globe Awards, and a TP de Oro for everything from most popular male star to best international actor. Thanks, Wikipedia! Back to. But before we can even put our Wikipedia page away, a guy working a heavy bag shouts, Smith may become a star. They're always looking for another Bella Lugosi. Paraphrase from Wikipedia. Horror film legend Bela Ferenc Dezo Blasco, better known as Bela Lugosi, was an Hungarian and American actor best known for playing Count Dracula in the 1931 film Dracula. Originally a stage actor in Hungary with 172 productions under his belt, Lugosi fled Hungary after a failed communist revolution because of his socialist activities. He migrated to Germany, then New Orleans, before settling in New York, where he landed the role of Count Dracula on Broadway in 1927, 
a role that would transform him into a film star when he starred in the film release of Bram Stoker's novel in 1931. Despite all of his stage experience, because of his thick accent when speaking English, Lugosi was constantly typecast as mad scientists and horror movie monsters and villains. Thanks, Wikipedia! Back to. So this comment is, if I'm taking it correctly, a knock on Joe's looks, but Tompkins tells Joe not to worry about it, that anything's better than winding up punchy, which essentially comes down to being dim-witted from taking too many blows to the head. And I think it may be a little bit too late. A guy with a towel wrapping his neck says that if anybody asks him, Joe's already well, nobody asked Tompkins him. pulls Joe away, telling him to ignore the loudmouth. Joe listens, asking how Tompkins managed to get Joe this role. And Tompkins replies, Well, it ain't much of a role. They just need a big guy to wear some kind of That's nutty monster costume and look dangerous. Nutty. Sometime later, at a bustling midtown studio. We're in said studio, the director and production crew in the background setting up their cameras, where Joe is wearing a costume straight out of a B-movie horror film. He's got on a black shirt with green sleeves, matching green leggings, and more orange than a Tropicana orange juice commercial. His gloves, orange. His belt, superhero orange. underwear, orange. boots, orange. and an orange mask that covers his head fully with oval slits for eyes and thin lines running from where his nose begins down to just under where his lower lip would end, making me think, who there? Orange. Orange you. Orange you glad I ain't a hero? <laughs> he looks ridiculous and says so, asking Tompkins what he's supposed to do. Tompkins says Tommy only has to do what the director tells him. In the background, the director shouts they're ready for the monster. This is Tommy's moment. The director calls him over and puts the man on his spot in front of the camera, shouting directions. Remember, you're supposed to be some kind of alien monster out on the rampage. So try to look evil and deadly and all that kind of jazz. Okay, scene 11, take one, roll him. The camera operator shouts quiet on the set and we are rolling. Tommy may not be able to beat a man in the ring, but he is decimating the lab set with hooks, thinking that because everything's made of balsa wood, even a six-year-old could smash this stuff up. He wishes that he was as strong as he's pretending to be, while the director thinks Joe's doing a great job, adding, He's doing fine, but why not? Any athlete could play an easy part like that. No respect! But when you're a hard luck Joe, as our hero seems to be, trouble can pop up anytime. Joe's overzealous boss of destruction sends debris flying towards an arc light to open page three, one of the larger pieces cracking the glass lens of the light. It falls over in the next panel, and we see this director doesn't keep a clean studio. As someone screams, Heads up! It's falling in the puddle of spilled chemicals from the previous scene! Another, Watch it! Those wires are still live! A third shout, Switch off the current! Heard, man! That extra is getting the full impact of the shock! And we get a panel of Joe the Monster Man trapped in the epicenter of the electricity, his arms wide as the current uh. In the next panel, surrounded by fire, Joe is laid out on the floor as the set team finally manages to turn the current off. Somebody shouts for a doctor, but someone else, as frugal as JJ shouts, No, he's starting to come around now. He'll be okay. We doused the current in time. Get a doctor? For what? We got the shot and the kid's still breathing, ain't he? We're good. I bet that's what they're thinking. Joe comes to shortly after, asking what happened. And Tompkins, best manager in the game, is kneeling beside him in a second, telling Joe to take it easy, that it seems the kid isn't cut out to be an actor either. Joe, small flashes of light dancing around his head, one hand on his helmet, says his head is aching to beat the band and that he was better off in the ring. This kid isn't better off anywhere action is happening. What is he talking about? But the director is loving it. In his red sweater vest, a smile nearly cutting his face in two, he tells Joe good work and says the scene was sensational. He's going to turn Joe's near-life moment into a scene for the movie. Then, a few minutes later, 
Tompkins a cigar back in his hand is standing talking with Joe, who still has stars dancing around his head. Joe, still rubbing his head, says, I still feel kind of strange. Nothing hurts me, but I feel sort of different. And Tompkins replies that any change will be an improvement and tells Joe to rest a while. While one redhead's coming to, across town, another is coming to her senses. We're on the scene. The scene. 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown. Limestone building. You can't miss it. Where Peter Parker has just walked into the bullpen in a goldenrod vest, black turtleneck, and SJB slacks. Just in time to see a young red-headed woman, her hair in a high bun with golden earrings, wearing a purple dress, high heels, and carrying a brown purse. She's stomping through the bullpen, and she is pissed, as Pete thinks this must be the third secretary quitting this week. And it's only Tuesday. She shouts that she won't work for J.J. the Skinflint another second. She marches into the final panel furious. No wonder he can't keep a secretary. A man with a temper like his ought to be in a cage. And Pete, watching her stomp by, thinks, Something tells me I picked a bad time to come to the Daily Bugle to ask Johnny Jonah why he hasn't sent me my check yet for the news photos I sold him last month. JJ still hasn't paid this man. I imagine he spent the last 30 some odd days flat out refusing to pay Pete the money he owes him, just rushing to the exit staircase whenever Pete gets off an elevator, telling his secretaries to lie and say he isn't in while he hides behind the door to his office. Just miserable. And I'm completely wrong, because on 4, we see J. Jonah Jameson in green pants, brown loafers, a white dress shirt, and red tie, and he wants all the smoke. Does he tirade? Is Central Park the most filmed location in the world? Wait, what? Of course he snaps! Hold it there, Parker! Hold it! It's your fault that Betty Brent quit her job here, the best secretary I ever had. It was because you had some kind of argument with her. I haven't been able to find one good secretary since she walked out of here. They all want coffee breaks, pension funds, profit share. They don't share. want to be treated like human beings trying to better their station. The nerve. Pete, waving goodbye and bending the corner in the next panel, shouts that he can't stop to talk and he'll come by again some other time while JJ finishes his rant. You think he can't? If Betty Brand doesn't come back, I'll, I'll, I'll get out of here. Pete, taking the miserable magnate's advice, gets out of the bullpen and runs smack into the purple suit wearing Mr. Steal Your Girl himself, Ned Leeds. Leeds asks how Pete's doing, and Pete, still no fan of Jameson's foreign correspondent, tells Ned he guesses he'll live. Both men ask each other at the same time if they've seen Betty Brent and get immediately riled up when they both realize the other hasn't. Ned, jabbing a finger at Pete, shouts, No sense keeping it from you. I asked her to marry me. She wanted to see you before she'd give me an answer. Then I had to dash to California on business before I could see her again. Now, I return to find she's gone. I want to know why. Pete says the man better ask Betty. And Ned, swinging past his knees, leads, snaps! Grabbing Pete's collar, he shouts in our friend's face. Don't give me any of your lip, Parker. I never did like you, and I don't like you now. Did you make Betty quit a job? And where is she? Pete, as far from soft as Earth is from the Andromeda Galaxy, clenches a fist and replies, Get your hand off my jacket, Romeo. I'm not interested in Betty Brant. If you can find her and marry her, be my guest. The two get face to face in the next panel. Lead saying he's going to make Pete tell him where Betty is a moment before JJ walks into the hallway, still fuming. Lead, let go of him. You're a reporter, not the village bouncer. And you, Parker, use some of that energy taking pictures for the bugle from now on. Ned listens, releasing Pete, but he's not letting things go. You haven't heard the last of me, Parker. I'll find Betty and learn what happened when I was gone. Pete quips. Okay, put on your little Sherlock cap and start looking. I've got things to do. And turning his back on Ned, walks towards the exit to the bugle, wondering where Betty went and hoping she's all right. Ned, 
still getting his rocks off, shouts that Pete is being cold and uncaring. He asks if Betty means nothing to Pete, who replies, Aw, shut up! Word. On five, Pete pushes the door to the Daily Bugle lobby open, thinking maybe he should have told Betty that he is Spider-Man, that everything may have been different if he did, before falling into his woes. The camera pulled in tight on his face, his eyes blue to show he's in his feelings. He thinks, I almost hope that Leeds does find her. It might be for the best. What chance would we have for happiness with the secret I must always carry with me? But now, let's change our scene before there's not a dry eye left in the house. We're back in the studio, the director telling Joe that if he's feeling up to it, they're going to film the big fight scene. Joe, toy soldier that he is, says he's feeling fine and they should get the scene over with. The director points toward a group of five guys clad in futuristic SJB costumes, all helmets and high-pointed shoulders, and tells Joe that he's a monstrous alien who wants to destroy these space explorers. He goes on to say, So tear into them as though they're your worst enemies. And don't worry, they're all well-trained stuntmen. They won't hurt you. The guy with the clapperboard shouts, Quiet on the set! Scene 16, take one! But Joe, standing here in his orange and green, spots dancing around his head, is in his own world now. He thinks, uh, It's funny. I feel as though they are my enemies. Someone shouts action in the gutter between panels, and Joe goes to work in the next. As the director looks on thinking, Wow, he's a natural. He's making every punch look real. Joe thinks, I do hate them. I hate everyone. Everyone always laughed at me, but they won't laugh anymore. And summarily snaps, flooring two explorers with a right hook and a third with a left straight punch. A lighting guy in the background shouts that Joe's great. Another Lon Chaney. Paraphrase from Wikipedia. Leonidas Frank Chaney, better known as Lon Chaney, was Golden Age Hollywood's Monster Man. Known for his roles in silent horror films The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera, Chaney made a name for himself for his amazing ability to transform his appearance on the screen using makeup. Chameleon may have learned a thing or two from Chaney, who was so good at the practice, he earned the nickname The Man of a Thousand Faces. The son of deaf parents, his grandfather Jonathan Kennedy founded what is now the Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind, Chaney became adept at pantomiming and took his skills to the stage in 1902. At 22, he married a 16-year-old named Cleva Creighton Yikes. before divorcing eight years later after a suicide attempt by Creighton that ended Chaney's stage career. Undaunted, he took to Hollywood where his skills of makeup gave him a leg up against others fighting to break into show business. After early struggles in the industry, Chaney went on a run that can only be classified as a marathon. From 1917 to 1919, he starred in 14 movies alongside Dorothy Phillips and William Stowell. That's a trio of pure talent. After Stowell's death in 1919, Chaney gained critical acclaim for his makeup skills and acting in The Miracle Man, a role that made him number one among character actors in the United States. He played every character role from Quasimodo to The Phantom of the Opera, his makeup skills leaving lasting impressions in both, with the latter role, according to the Los Angeles Times, quote, The newspapers of the day reported that women fainted, children bawled, and grown men stepped outside for fresh air after the famous unmasking scene. Man's had people fainting. Sadly, 102 of the 157 films Chaney starred in are considered lost to the world because of the nature of Golden Age films. But if you want to know what the man was about, here's a quote from his 1925 autobiographical article from Movie Magazine. I wanted to remind people that the lowest types of humanity may have within them the capacity for supreme self-sacrifice. The dwarfed, mishapened beggar of the streets may have the noblest ideals. Most of my roles since The Hunchback, such as The Phantom of the Opera, he Who Gets Slapped, The Unholy Three, etc., have carried the theme of self-sacrifice or renunciation. These are the stories which I wish to do. End quote. 
everybody deserves a chance to have their stories told, especially those considered the castaways. Thanks, Wikipedia. That too. So this lighting guy is impressed with the way Joe's handling himself, comparing Joe to a legend. Joe, still unraveling, drops two more explorers with a left hook, and he's thinking, They always said I'd never make a good fight because I didn't have the killer instinct, because I didn't have a fight at all, because I didn't get mad enough. But they'll never say that to me again. Not ever. Joe has completely lost his mind. In the final panel, as he tosses a goon feet over head in front of him and another head over feet over his head, the director looking on says, rightly, that Joe's gone berserk. But when his second asks if they should break it up, the director, channeling BJ Cosmo, shouts, Not on your life! This will be the greatest fight scene I've ever filmed! This director doesn't give a damn about the safety of the cast and crew at all. This production is off the rails. But then, minutes later... On 6, Joe decides to take this show on the road. As someone shouts for him to hold on because they don't have cameras on the street, Joe bursts through the wall of the studio, which I promise you looks like it's made of balsa wood, replying, who cares about cameras as people scatter in all directions. We get a great shot of a woman's leg racing stage left and a man's foot breaking stage right. Joe has the crowd in action. He lumbers into the street and lifts a car easily in each hand, flipping both, going monologue crazy. All I want to do is strike back at everybody. Make them all sorry they laughed at me. I'll show them. I'll show them all. Before I'm done, they'll realize that Joe Smith is somebody. But I don't get it. I don't understand. Where did all this strength come from? How come I can lift a couple of cars so easily? And walking down that very street, we find... As the crowd races away from the madman Joe, Pete, his left hand to his chin, his right in pocket, as usual, head lowered in thought, walks toward the chaos, ignoring the shouts of the people around him as he thinks, of course being in the corner, there's a good chance that Ned Leeds might be able to locate Betty. As the brief flies all around Pete, smashing into the sheer walls of the buildings behind him, he continues his internal monologue. She's so alone, no family, no friends. If only I knew she was okay. What if she needs something? If, if anything's wrong, I'll always feel it was my fault before a large chunk of concrete smashes into a wall inches away from his face. Finally snapped back into reality, he does a double take at the chunk of stone that almost takes skin off his nose, shouting, Say, what's going on here? Wow, I don't know who that is, but I guess it's web spinning time. It is web spinning time, indeed. And Spidey's suited and booted in no time, web swinging above Joe's head in the next panel, his left hand gripping a thin web line, his right spraying a cyclone of webbing over the crazed man's head, thinking, It looks like some refugee from a Halloween party run amok. I better slow down some webbing until I learn who and what he is. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit, shouting, Geronimo! Right on target! He falls from the heavens towards Joe, who's struggling against the greatest invention of restraint ever created. But the webbing proves to be no match for the guy named Joe to open seven as he shreds it easily. Spidey shouting for the man not to destroy it because the stuff isn't cheap. Still falling towards Joe, Spidey thinks, Uh-uh, he's more than some nutty trouble-making clown. Only someone with real super strength could have broken that webbing. Then screams, Look, chum, we're having a population explosion with costume characters around here. Why don't you find yourself some other playground? Joe, fist filled with webbing, shouts the age-old, Spider-Man, I should have guessed. And we've got action. He says he's going to put Spidey down with one punch before having the threat knocked out of his mouth by a vicious right hand that connects with the left side of his jaw, thrown by our still-falling hero who replies that he doesn't know who the man is, but 
You've got definite manifestations of a deep-rooted antisocial fixation. Dr. Parker giving his expert diagnosis. But Joe can take a punch. He eats the blow and throws a right straight, sending Spidey flying backwards, screaming. That's it. Talk, talk. The more you talk, the angrier I get. And the angrier I get, the stronger I get. Did this man really just steal the Hulk's whole shtick? He did. And how does he even know this to be true? He got his powers all of maybe 30 minutes ago? Either way, Spidey says if that's the case, he's going to shut up from here on out. Lion! Because in the very next panel, as Joe knocks him into a parked lime green car, Spidey smashing up against the fender shouts, Look, while we're still on speaking terms, what's your name? I'd like to know who it is that's knocking my block off. Won't talk, eh? Then I'll just have to keep saying, hey you! In the final panel, as Spidey dodges out of the way of a double-fisted hammer strike from Joe that wrecks the car's bumper, he is motor-mouthing. Actually, I've never met a modest costume scrapper before. Usually they start off by saying, nobody can defeat the purple pennyways. Or, you fool, don't you realize you've no chance against the human windshield wiper? Boy, you may be a mass of muscles, but when it comes to small talk, forget it. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, 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 infinity page. page. Page 8. Just in time to witness Spidey lean into a left hook, snapping Joe's head back, saying the man must think that if he can't beat a guy, he'll bore him to death with silence while thinking. I never thought anyone like him before. It's as though he isn't quite with it. But how did he ever become so strong? The punch, a little lunch for Joe, goes straight to his wrestling training, striking back against Spider-Man with a missile dropkick that connects with our hero's chest before lifting Spidey over his head easily. Spidey shouting that this is simply undignified has the insult added to his injuries a moment later as Joe tosses him from the sidewalk where they're duking it out towards a passing trash truck. As Spidey hurdles through the air, he thinks, I don't even feel that he's particularly trying to harm me. There's something much bigger than Spider-Man that's bugging him. And somehow, I've got to learn what it is. Back on the sidewalk, Joe, gripping his mask, shouts that the strange mist that was clouding his mind is clearing. Just as cosmic and comic timing see Tompkins racing down the street towards him. He shouts that Joe has to get out of here and leaves Joe down the sidewalk. No time for guessing games now, Joe. You're in a jam, but I'll stand by you, even though I ought to have my head examined for it. Come on! Joe says he won't forget Tompkins for all his help, and Tompkins, as honest as a day is long, replies, I kind of wish you would. You're a born loser, kid. What's that old saying about an honest man? An honest man will continue to be so, though surrounded on all sides by rogues. Shout out to Charles Caleb Colton. And by the time Spidey returns to the scene of battle, he finds Spidey bouncing off of a car and onto a sheer wall, shouts that the villain is gone and this is the first time he's fought a guy and doesn't know his name. At that very moment, in another part of town, we're outside of a gray brick building as Harry Osborn, red hair ablaze, nose pointed towards the sky, sits in a convertible with Flash, fashion on trash Thompson, riding shotgun. They're both staring up at Harry's father, Norman, who's in a green suit and red tie with a brown fedora, clutching a leather satchel. Norman thanks Harry for the lift, so we know they just dropped Norman off, and Harry says no problem, asking Norman if he can borrow the car. Norman says sure, as Flash thinks that Mr. Osborne is a great guy. But a few seconds later, Osborne, staring at his reflection in the clothing shop window, thinks to himself, I thought they'd never drive away. Now's my chance to make a quick change. No one is apt to notice in this gloomy, darkened corner. His quick change? A pair of lime green tinted sunglasses and a gummed on goatee. Everyone else is paying what I always figure are hundreds of dollars at this time for these chameleon level masks, not Norman Osborne. 
And so, we find Norman in a room with a bunch of wise guys. He's standing just off stage right, talking to the boss who has graying hair, a thin mustache, and an SJB suit wrapping his husky build, while two toughs stand stage left in front of a third, sitting with his chest pressed against the back of a chair. The boss, pointing at Osborne, says the man called them all together to do a job, but won't tell them what it is. Osborne shoots back that his identity doesn't matter. As the three toughs converse among themselves, the man sitting asks if the guy's serious. What chance would they have against Spider-Man? In the next panel, Osborne pulls a wad of cash from his briefcase, presenting it to the boss. As you can see, I'm prepared to pay handsomely to ensure that Spider-Man never interferes with me again. And to prevent any double-crossing, I've cut these bills in half. You take one half now, I'll deliver the other half when the web-slinger has been put out of action. You know I'll pay off, since my half is worthless to me now, anyway. The boss, taking the cash, says it's a deal. And I gotta say, this is a much better way to make sure the job gets done. In almost every heist movie, villain movie I've seen where cash is exchanged, most villains transfer half the cash now, half when the job is done. But not Osborne. He's literally cut these bills in half. Genius! The boss lights a cigarette in the gutter between panels as Osborne continues his instruction. Handle it any way you want. Alert the entire underworld to the reward I'm offering. Spider-Man can elude all of you. The boss taking a drag of his cigarette says Spider-Man ain't got a chance. Taking the briefcase from Osborne, which I think is ridiculous. He already has the bills that are cut in half. What does he need the briefcase for? He asked what Spidey did to make the man want Spidey knocked off. And Osborne, as privileged as they come, says not to ask too many questions. That the answer to that question is his business. And the boss is like, relax. Spider-Man is as good as kaput. And now, while we all clear our heads and try to understand what's going on here, Let's quickly visit the campus at Empire State U. We see Flash, fashion on trash, Thompson in a maroon suit and green sweater, striding forward with a hand raise. Harry Osborne is step behind him as the blonde bombshell Gwen Stacy stands in the foreground in her signature red dress with a short-haired brunette in a yellow sweater. Flash shouts for the girls to hold up as Gwen says, look who it is, the two charter members of the Let's Hate Peter Parker Club. While just a stone's throw away. On 10, the goldenrod kid Pete Parker is walking through campus his hands in his pockets when he spots a group of students holding picket signs. He wonders aloud what they're picketing this time, and a blonde-haired kid replies, Didn't you hear? They're protesting tonight's protest meeting. Pete says it figures. As he strolls past the group exercising their right to peaceful protest, a red-haired kid, probably a young Rorschach to be sure, comic book fans know what I'm talking about, grabs him by the shoulder, telling our friend that they could use another man to carry a sign. Pete, shocking me in the moment to be sure, replies, Not me. I haven't got time. Besides, I've nothing to protest about. The redhead clenches a fist, asking if Pete is some sort of religious fanatic. This is July 1966, so I can only imagine this is one of the many protests that began to gain steam against the Vietnam War. The way Stan worded this is genius, however, because it can also be a protest to these protests. So we can't know where Pete stands on the issues. Either way, a brown-haired kid asks Pete why he isn't interested in saving the world. That at the very least, this is an excuse to cut classes as the redhead chimes in that they could get their pictures into Newsweek. Flash and Harry spotting Pete with the marchers are ecstatic, thinking he's part of the group, while the crowd continue trying to convince Pete to join their meeting, saying that if he does, they'll join one of his sometime. Another says even if Pete doesn't have anything to protest about, that won't stop them. But Pete, probably only interested in protesting J. Jonah Jameson, says forget it, pissing off the crowd. A sandy-haired kid shouts that Pete's cousin likes Lawrence Welk. Paraphrase from Wikipedia. Lawrence Welk was an American accordionist, band leader, and television personality best known for The Lawrence Welk Show, which ran from 1951 to 1982. 
Wolf began his musical career at the age of 21, leaving his family farm and joining traveling troops of performers before leading a traveling big band in the 1930s. In the 40s, he played a decade-long stint at the Tryon Ballroom in Chicago, performed regularly in the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City, and recorded no less than 10 soundies with his band, soundies being the precursor to music videos. In 1951, Welk, now living in Los Angeles, produced the Lawrence Welk Show that showcased his big band and their sound, which had come to be known as Champagne Music. The show was a hit and ran for the next 31 years. And did this man love accordions? He was awarded four U.S. design patents for a musically-themed restaurant menu, two accordion-style trays for serving food at restaurants, and an accordion-themed ashtray. He had no less than 50 singles released in his lifetime, 18 of these being top 20 hits, with the 1960 hit, Calcutta, reaching number one on U.S. charts. But he didn't stop there. From 1971 to 1981, he released six books, beginning with Wonderful, Wonderful, the autobiography of Lawrence Welk in 1971, and ending with Never Too Young in 1981. Despite his love of music, however, Welk was no fan of jazz, so I can understand why in 1966, with jazz becoming the premier American music, a kid would use the man's name as an insult. Thanks, Wikipedia! Back to a Jerry Blonde woman tells Pete to go back to Squaresville and calls him a rosy-cheeked reactionary. Pete, glaring over his shoulder, thinks, I better cut out before I give them something to protest about. Pete is going to turn this protest upside down if he snaps. And of course, Flash wastes no time taking a shot at Pete. His hands on his hips, Gwen and Harry looking on behind him, he shouts at Pete's back, causing Pete to turn. Just as I thought, Parker, you're even too puny to carry a sign, huh? Pete, smirking, thinks, no matter what Flash says to me, it's hard to get mad at him. Even though he has no use for Peter Parker, he's one of Spider-Man's most loyal fans. Flash asks if Pete ever loses his cool, and Pete replies honestly. Sure, but not when a big zero like you tries to goad me. Like I'm out here beefing with supervillains and Ned leads over the heart of Betty Brant. You don't know drama. In the final panel, Flash and company turn to leave. Harry asking Flash why he didn't take a poke at Pete. Flash says, hey. He's right there. Go ahead. I will never get tired of pointing you towards why Flash won't take a poke at the Prince of Patience from Forest Hill Station. And you can find out why in the Season 1 episode, Two Infinities, here on Me and My Friend Pete. While Flash and Harry chicken out, Gwen, chancing a glance over her shoulder, thinks, No matter what the others say, there's something so strong, so proud about Peter Parker. Yeah, young goldenrod, noble in heart and mind. Students, all together now. Switch scenes. Switch. We're on the scene. The scene? Joe's bedroom, where the never-do-right is sitting on his bed, his head in his hands, while Tompkins stands bracing against the footrail with both hands, a look of concern on his face. There are posters of boxes on the wall and a dresser with a small lamp. The guy named Joe is keeping it all the way simple. Joe says he still doesn't know what happened, that he doesn't know what came over him. Tompkins says he doesn't either, but right now, the kid needs to rest, that they'll figure it all out after he wakes up. As Joe lies back, refusing to take off his stunt costume, that thing is definitely ripe. Tommy Tompkins says he thinks the arc lighting mixed with the chemicals set off a shock that he was sure Joe was kaput. Kaput clearly being the word of this issue. It's a weird bedtime story to tell, but it works because Joe is fast asleep in the next panel. And if we know anything, we know Tommy True Blue Tompkins genuinely cares about Joe's future. Scratching his head while he watches Tommy sleep, he thinks, He's really a good egg. I like to help him, but I don't even know where to start. What to do? Meanwhile, at the headquarters of what might be called Hoods Incorporated. Of course we're going to call it Hoods Incorporated. 
Hired by Norman Osborn, the boss has gotten started right away in his quest to rid the city of the amazing Spider-Man. Standing in front of his desk, he's talking with no less than 14 goons in suits and fedoras of all colors who are looking on. After telling them all to clam up, he speaks. A certain party has offered a reward to the man who finally beats Spider-Man. A reward big enough to put you on easy street. Permanently. What do you say to that? Someone in the crowd who's probably felt Spidey's wrath once before says that Spidey's no pushover and asks how big the reward is. To their astonished faces, the boss says, 20,000 greenies. You know I looked it up. According to inflationcalculator.com, $20,000 in today's money is about $183,958.02. So even divided 14 ways with the people in this room, everyone is coming off with at least $13,139.86. Nice work if you can get it. I mean, I'm sure most of these dudes are going to be absolutely pummeled by the webhead, so the money will most likely go to their hospital bills. But what are you going to do? The bills need pain. Simple and plain. Donuts and dimes if you ever wondered why. To a man every goon says they're in, wondering what they're waiting for. Behind the ivy-covered, time-hollowed walls of ESU. While New York's underworld plots the downfall of the Spider-Man, Pete's in the science lab of ESU. Hard at work as usual. His back to Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy, holding a smoking vial with yellow liquid inside. Osborn, focused more on clowning Pete than working, says his old man has forgotten more about science than Parker will ever know. Don't you just hate when a person brags about how someone they know is better than you, as if that person is them? If I repeat... I'd be thinking, I don't care if your granddaddy better than me, pig nose. I'm better than you and truly only trying to be better than I was yesterday. Get off my hot rod. Leave me alone. Pete, listening to Harry talk his trash, thinks he read about Harry's father somewhere, but can't remember where exactly before deciding it doesn't matter anyway. As soon as class ends, Pete, hands in pocket, exits the building, breaking stage right, while the rest of the class walks towards us. And Pete's head is filled with woes. My head is spinning. I can't forget Betty Brandt. Ned Lane, that costume muscle man I fought before, or Aunt May, and my schoolwork. Gwen, staring at Pete as she's known to do, thinks she wishes the gang would stop riding the guy and that she feels sorry for him. If you do, how about you lead the charge, bombshell? What's a feeling versus decisive action? Same thing a dream is to a goal, I suppose. Be the change. Be the change. And so... Tov opens to Spidey, suited and booted, leaping from building to building, huh. thinking that web swinging ha. and bouncing around oh. the New York rooftops is the one thing that clears his head. As he leaps a small gap, huh. he thinks the night is going to be slow, that he hasn't heard so much as a police siren. But if Spidey thinks he's getting out of this night without a rumble, he's got another thing coming, as three wise guys lurk behind him on the roof he's just leapt from. The goons say they should tackle Spidey from behind, that they'll polish him off before he knows what hit him. But Spidey's sixth sense for danger goes off, rattling inside of his skull as he gets a littery. Uh-uh, a bevy of baddies sneaking up behind me. And we've got action. I imagine Spidey backflips in the gutter between panels because he's facing two out of the three goons who were sneaking up on him in the next. As he leapfrogs the chimney stack and sends both night-night with swift kicks to the chest, the whole time quipping. Don't you gents know better than to try a surprise attack on a fellow with built-in spire sense? You needn't bother answering, of course. It was purely a rhetorical question. As the two men fly backwards, we see the guy stage right is holding a pistol. So we know now that not only are these goons ready to fight, they're ready to shoot. Doesn't matter. Spidey came to play. Running along a sheer wall of the roof in the next panel, Spidey drops another goon before he can even turn the corner to come at our hero. Spidey, wondering the whole time what would make a bunch of two-bit punks, decide to jump him. 
And as Spidey speculates over his fallen foes, the man called Joe Spot still dancing around his head since he was shocked way back on page three, tells Tompkins that he's not able to sleep. Tompkins tells him to get up and take a yes, shower. Thank Joe it. stands and Tompkins tells him they've got to get downtown and find a way to settle up for the damage Joe did rampaging in the street and the studio. And Joe, self-loathing on Max Tilt, replies, Everything I do goes wrong. I was born a failure and I'll die a failure. I'm just a bum. But Tompkins won't hear of it. He says Joe shouldn't be so hard on himself because he's just had a lot of bad breaks. And Joe snaps, slamming his fist into the stage left wall of the final panel. He screams, I should have been champ. Do you hear? Joe Smith, champ. That's the way it ought to be. But it ain't. Man couldn't win a stage wrestling match, and he's screaming about how he should have been champ. Somebody get Norton G. Fester on the line. Brock Lesnar, Joe Smith is not. 13 opens to Tompkins sticking his hand through the hole. Joe just punched in the wall, shouting that the man is just as strong as he was on the street and thinks that the kid's losing it again. And he's right. Joe, spot still dancing in front of his face, both fists raised, fighting demons we can't see, screams, I can still be the champ. I'm big enough and strong enough and tough enough. His face red and in close up in the next panel, those spots still dancing, he continues, And I hate them all. I still remember how everyone laughed at me. They said I didn't have a fighter's heart. Well, I got it now. And I'll prove it to all of them. Tompkins grabs his arm, telling him that he can't go out into the world like this, that he's got to calm down. He says he can't let Joe go on another rampage, that the kid is only going to get into more. More what? I'm guessing he was going to say trouble, but whatever his words were going to be, they're silenced by a backhand from Joe that sends Tompkins flying backwards. He crashes onto Joe's bed as the befuddled bruiser shouts that nobody, but nobody tells the champ what to do. While in a neighboring area, more fun and games are now in progress. And no lies are spoken as we catch our hero in the thick of things. He's got a redhead on his tail as he leaps over a jutting huh. structure on a rooftop, the same time sending an olive-suited goon flying with a right straight and snapping a green-suited tough's head back with a left cross. He hits the structure on a handstand and clubs another hired gun with a right straight upside down, sending that man's jaw north, screaming. I appreciate the fact that you won't volunteer to serve as my sparring partners, but I'd sure like to know why the sudden generosity. In the final panel, on his feet once more, Spidey throws a left uppercut and a right hammer fist, and two more dudes are off their feet and on the fast track to Dreamville. The King of Swing is deep into play one of the Golden Liability playbook. Play one? Fist! Swing him if you got him! The amazing Spider-Man, and he is working right now. And I'm guessing he's enjoying himself. Well, I suppose you tell me in your own good time. After you wake up, that is. All done? Hmm. They don't seem to build tough crooks like they used to. Whipping. And at that exact, precise, self-same second, not that it would really make any difference if it was a bit earlier or later, a strangely garbed figure enters a crowded gym. On 14, Joe, mask off, probably to give the gym goers a fighting chance, has just entered the room of promising pugilists who all stop and stare at him. None of these guys are small. Every one of them has to be pushing or past 200 pounds, and they're all working out, so they've all got a pump on. Joe, still sparkly-headed, shouts, Remember me, you creeps? I'm Joe Smith, and I'm gonna wallop the living daylights out of the whole manger pack of you. A black guy curling a barbell weighing 165 pounds from the looks of it tries to give Joe the benefit of his stupidity. He shoots back, Okay, canvas back. We all gotta laugh out of your crazy costume. Now get lost. But the rest of the gym rats want all the smoke. They shout, Nah, let him hang around, Marvin. He kind of dresses up the joint. 
Yeah, he's pretty as a picture this new Sunday go to meeting duds. I hope he really is looking for a fight. I ain't knocked nobody's block off in weeks. Joe says he is. He's looking for a fight. Ask who's going to go first, then ask if he has to pick his own victim. He is swinging past his knees right now. They're pride wounded. Every man in the gym steps forward, shouting insults, itching for their chance with the guy named Joe. Marvin says, this won't take long. And Joe, screaming, you bet it won't. I've been waiting for this ever since I can remember. I hate all of you punks. Punches the clock. He throws a back fist at a guy in a blue jumpsuit, sending the man head over feet while clubbing a guy in blue trunks with a downward right that sends him flying back into Marvin the Beefcake. And now, we're sure it will come as no surprise to any loyal Spider-ophile to see Spidey swinging past the gym during the aforementioned Donnybrook. Or, how wordy can you get? Spidey in a white negative space, lured by the sounds of Joe cleaning house. Boom! Fop! Yoink! Web swings onto the scene, shouting. Hey! What gives in there? Sounds like a typical day at the Geneva Peace Convention. For a rundown of the Geneva Convention, check out Season 2's bonus episode, Fear and War, exclusive to patrons. Back to... In the final panel, Spidey creeps onto the scene just in time to see Joe hit a brown trunk boxer so hard with the left cross that the man is lifted off his feet towards the ceiling. I'm sure this man is going to hit the ceiling hard. Spidey, looking on in mild shock, his back facing us in shadow, shouts just who he was looking for and wonders if the man ever stops fighting in this hour. Panel of the week. On 15, wanting his piece of the action, Spidey web swings into the gym to help the overmatched fighter, shouting, Gang Wayne, here comes Spidey. Please don't embarrass me by your applause. A red-haired guy in an SJB cashmere sweater shouts that this is a lucky break. They've all heard about the reward on Spidey's head, and now's their chance to collect. Marvin, somehow avoiding Joe's rampage, shouts, What are we waiting for? Get him. Spidey lands on the next panel and immediately has to dodge a wild haymaker thrown by blue cashmere. He throws an overhand right, knocks a guy in, I kid you not, lime green trunks and a cowboy hat, out cold, asking what's going on, that he came to help and these guys are trying to jump him. Is that Montana? Before our hero can get his bearings, Joe closes the space between them and knocks Spidey backwards with a running uppercut. I ain't never seen that before. Someone shouts that this is their chance to rush the web wonder and Spidey is now on the wrong side of the numbers game. A graying boxer shouts for Joe to stay on him, that this is their chance to claim their reward, clubbing Spidey with a downward left, while Marvin races up to get his licks in and the befuddled bruiser tackles our hero, shouting that he ain't friends with anyone in the room, that they're all his enemies. He's just working smart. He's going to take out the big bad in Spider-Man and then destroy these pugilists. Spidey, his left forearm braced on the floor, his legs in the air, he's thinking, Reward, eh? Very interesting. I wonder who's the pair. But Spidey's got problems in the now. And in a stunning panel, he pulls a spinner Rooney like wrestling great Booker T. The Spidey Rooney! Spinning on his hand, his legs wide like helicopter propellers, his right foot connecting with a guy in SJB trunks while he pulls the leg from beneath <gasps> a boxer wearing tan shoes. Our hero is working right now. But so is Joe. Racing into the final panel, he snuffs the upside-down Spidey in the head with a left uppercut, deciding that he doesn't care at all about the rest of the chumps in the gym. But if he beats Spidey, then he'll be the champ. Spidey, eating the blow, isn't even frazzled. He thinks, I was right about him. The poor guy hasn't got all his marbles. Spidey, I'm going to go ahead and say the guy's got none. Okay, 
It's sound effects time again, so hang on. Here we go. On 16, the action picks all the way up. Strap as Spider in. backflips on a handstand over <gasps> a down boxer and lavender trunks. Oh. He kicks an SJB trunk dude across the face, ah. sending the man flying in an open plie. And Buck was the third dude with a left weight. He pushes off of his fingertips, huh. flips right side up, ha. throws a left backhand, sending Marvin flying into a heavy bag before getting sucker punched by the dazzled Joe. Spidey's chin facing north, he finally hits the floor on his back where he's dog-piled by two boxers and I swear, the janitor. But pushing off his elbows, he kicks huh. both feet above his head, ha. clearing the space around him. Before he can kip up though, Joe's on him again, this time with a running left hook. But you know Spidey rolls with the punches so he survives. On 17, he does an old school cartwheel, and by the time he's done swinging and kicking, three more dudes are sent sprawling. Now, with every boxer in the building KO'd, it's Spidey's turn to punch the clock, and he falls on Joe like a man possessed. Leaping across the room, he hits Joe with a right cross that makes the man's head disappear behind the impact. Pressing the advantage, Spidey throws another right in the next panel that knocks Joe's head clean out of it. And now... With one final pacow, we end our scintillating sound effects section as Smiling Stan thanks you, one and all, for the brief breather you've allowed him. We don't even get to see the final blow, just Spidey's left fist raised in a sky blue negative space with the stars that have been dancing around Joe's head surrounding it. Either way, this fight is over. To be sure though, Spidey cocks back a right fist, ready to clobber Joe one more time, but Joe, holding up his hands like, chill, shouts. The spots, I don't see them anymore. And I feel just like I always used to. Spidey has beat the befuddle out of the bruiser. Or, quite literally, knocked some sense into him. A moment later, the 616's finest, abolish the police, enter the room in the form of officers Bowtie Charlie and Blackman. Charlie shouts, what's all the ruckus in here? And of course, Marvin, knowing the only good time to see a police officer is never shouts. What do you expect in the gym? Maypole dancing? Charlie replies, very funny. Let's hope it'll tickle the judge, too. These men have literally done nothing wrong under the law. Sure, they ganged up on Spidey, but it's not like the King of Swing is going to press charges. And the guy named Joe attacked them. But you know like I know. If you don't know, now you know that police do not like having their authority tested. Either way, Charlie spots Joe and shouts that this is the guy who thinks he's a one-man bulldozer. Joe Sweat streaming down his face as he didn't mean to cause any trouble. Joe replies King Kong didn't either. Paraphrase from Wikipedia. Known as the eighth wonder of the world, King Kong is quite possibly the greatest film monster of all time. From his inception into Hollywood lore in the film of the same name in 1933, King Kong has been the theatrical proof that size matters. Ranging anywhere from 18 to 50 feet tall, Kong is a massive gorilla with great strength and agility, resembling silverbacks, but much more inclined to walk on his hind feet. Hailing from Skull Island, the awesome Kong, since his inception in 1933, has taken on everything from the world's militaries to the literal king of lizards, Godzilla, but is probably most famous for swatting at World War I-era warplanes while scaling New York's Empire State Building. There have been no less than 12 theatrical releases showcasing King Kong, the most recent being Godzilla vs. King Kong in 2021. Three television shows and more pop culture tie-ins than, well, I got to nothing. DC's Titano, the Super 8, bears a striking resemblance to the Skull Island refugee, and the most notable references in my opinion, the Beatles used his likeness in their animated film for their Yellow Submarine album. 
and the never-ending primetime cartoon, The Simpsons Treehouse of Horrors 3, pits Homer Simpson in the role of King Kong. So calling Joe King Kong is a hell of a compliment. Thanks, Wikipedia. Back to In the final panel, as Charlie gets ready to slap the cuffs on Joe, the one and only Tommy Tompkins burst into the gym, both arms high, shouting that he'll take care of everything because he's the man's manager. Blackman, always ready with a little sass, says, Manager, what he needs is a good lawyer. But on 18, Tompkins proves he wears a silk wrap in his fedora for a reason. Punching Joe playfully on the arm, he says that he talked with the network and they've agreed not to press charges, that the chemicals that splashed on Joe were the reason he lost his mind and that the effects should be gone soon. Not realizing Spidey's already beating the crazy out of the guy named Joe, he listens to his client tell him that he's already feeling much better. But Tompkins isn't done. He says Joe hasn't heard the best part yet. They saw the first reels of your film. You were sensational. They want to enlarge your role, sign you up to a long-term acting contract. The works. Joe, a tear running down his left cheek, is overcome with joy, saying he's finally going to be somebody, and an actor no less. And of course, all the haters become well-wishers immediately. The boxers crowd around him in the next panel, thumping him on his back, Marvin saying they always knew he had it in him, while a guy with a bowl haircut and a face like hamburger meat shouts, How's about getting us in the movies with you, champ? Me? I always thought I was kind of the Cary Grant type. This man said taught. T apostrophe O-U-G-H-T. I always taught. <laughs> Back to this man has just compared himself to Archibald Alec Leach, better known the world over as Cary Grant. Paraphrase from Wikipedia. The Hollywood leading man from his inception in the biz in the 1930s until the mid 60s. He had it all. The accent, the style, the comic timing, dreamboat eyes, and a cleft chin you could squeeze a dime into. Beginning in stage acting in the 1920s, his good looks and noticeable talent saw him in film by the early 1930s with his first film, Blonde Venus, in 1932. Originally a crime film actor, he set the world ablaze with what some people consider the greatest comedies of all time with the films The Awful Truth, 1937, Bringing Up Baby, 1938, his Girl Friday, 1940, and The Philadelphia Story, 1940. He moved into the dramas next, earning two Academy Award nominations for Best Actor with the films Penny Serenade, 1941, and None But the Lonely Heart, 1942. In the late 1950s and early 60s, after a career already making him legendary, he earned five Golden Globe nominations for Best Actor, his most notable work of this run being Indiscreet, 1958, that Touch of Mink, 1962, Charade, 1963. He is considered by the American Film Institute as the second greatest male star of the golden age, second only to the icon Humphrey Bogart himself. Despite never winning any of his nominations for Oscars or Golden Globes, he received the David D. Donatello Award for Best Foreign Actor in 1960, an honorary award from the Academy for his unique mastery of the art on screen acting with the respect and affection of his colleagues in 1969 and Kennedy Center Honors in 1981. You want to talk about style? You want to talk about panache? Baby, you better talk about Cary Grant. I highly recommend His Girl Friday, and if you wonder why I don't just call Betty Brent a secretary, well, that movie is why. And this catcher mint faced guy smiling toothily, drawing comparisons, is no Cary Grant. So this is a great bit of comedic storytelling, combining words and art from Stan and Steve in their final romp together. Thanks, Wikipedia. Back to...
Spidey crouched low on the skylight of the gym and the next panel looking on thinks, I'm sure Glenn worked out this way. I always felt he wasn't really a bad guy. At least I learned his name anyway. Maybe someday I'll be able to get a free pass to see him in a movie. Although with my luck, they'll give him a nose job, change his name, and I'll never know who he is. Minutes later, as Spidey makes his way through a nearby alley, Spidey lands in the dark and far end of the alley, where no less than eight gunnies advance on him, wanting mere five minutes with our hero, all delusional in their ideas about taking him down. There he is, it's Spider-Man. Let's grab him before he can get away. All together, rush him. We've got him now. He can't get past us. The alley is too narrow. As fearless as they come, Spidey marches forward, his Spidey sense ablaze, shouting. I got news for you, eager beavers. It's you who can't get past me. Don't rush, boys. We've got all the time in the world. Just step right up. As the goons rush him with fists, blackjacks, wooden clubs, and whatever else they can find, one of them screams that 20K is as good as theirs. And of course, Spidey, always trying to make the donuts, always with a pocket full of dimes, thinks, 20,000? Is that the reward offer for me? I wish I could claim it myself. On 19, mowing down the goons like so much blades of grass, our hero thinks, life is really alright. Joe Smith calls it all that trouble and winds up a big hero. I said don't rush. His fist working in the next panel, sending hats flying and unclipping ties. He thinks he's the poor man Sir Lancelot and always winds up in Nowhereville. He continues his devastating advance into the next panel, throwing a whirlwind left and right, thinking, it's a good thing I'm not the hyper-emotional type. I probably have had a breakdown long before this. Spidey just thought that he's not the hyper-emotional type. There goes that river that flows through the minds of men again. Denial. His back to us in the next panel, downing the last two rushing goons with uppercuts from both hands. Alley just filled with strong bodies. He shouts, Sorry I'm depriving you of your reward bundle, fellas, but think of the money I'm saving you in taxes. At the end of the alley, he spots an armless mannequin with golden hair, and his thoughts immediately shift. Even a blame store window dummy sits there and grins at me. His fist clenched. He Smirk. Sit there with a dumb looking smile on your lifeless pan. The more I look at him, the more he reminds me of Ned Leeds. Before throwing a right hook, channeling his anger for Jameson's demon reporter onto the dummy. No, I hate you, Leeds. The mannequin's Cheshire grin in the foreground in the next panel. Spidey walks with hunched shoulders out of the alley, finishing his sad, sullen, sulky monologue. Because you have the right to propose to Benny. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between you. Spidey, you gotta chill. A short time later, at the home of Mrs. May Parker. We find Queen May in purple dress and olive sweater. Welcome back, Queen May. On the front porch of her Forest Hills home, as she talks to a woman in a blue blouse and matching skirt, her head hidden behind the low-hanging leaves of the Parker cedar tree. I'm so sorry you can't stay any longer, Mary Jane. I'm sure Peter will be home most any minute now. The incomparable Mary Jane. She replies, I'd so like to meet him, Mrs. Parker, but some other time, perhaps. And gets ghost. Petey boy, you don't know your luck is finna change sooner than you think. No sooner has the front door closed behind the visitor than May Parker hears a weary voice behind her. Pete is back on the scene in his goldenrod vest, black turtleneck, and SJBs. He enters the house a step behind Queen May, his hand in his pocket, apologizing to his aunt for being late, and tells her he's already had dinner. Yeah, all those goons in that alley and on that rooftop. That was a five-course meal for the Goldenrod Kid. May, spinning around, shouts that Pete must have come in the back door. And he's like, sure, what's the difference? She grabs him by the bicep and drags him towards the front door, shouting that somebody wants to see him at the front door and tells him to hurry, that the woman might still be there. Pete, suspicion all over his face, asks who it is. But May doesn't answer. 
She drags him through the gutter between panels and out to the front door, just in time to see a hot pink convertible kicking up dust down the road. Mary Jane is gone. May says pshaw that they were seconds too late and all this is a shame. When Pete asks who it was, May tells him, reminding her nephew that she's been trying to hook them up for months. Pete's suspicion disappears, replaced with a forlorn expression. For just a second, I thought it might have been bad. May, of course, sensing Pete's chagrin, asks her nephew if he wants some more milk. And look, I hate to yuck anybody's yum, but that doesn't sound tasty at all. My little brother Leon loves sugar milk, so my family's got its own issues, I'll tell you. And that's the least. Shut it, Pete. Anyway, Pete says no thanks, opting instead to let go of some of the day's frustrations by watching the news before going to bed. He turns the idiot box on and his frustration boils over again as the newscaster, a picture-in-picture -picture of Joe Smith behind him, explains why the man called Joe is plastered on the screen. It has just been announced that Joe Smith has signed a five-year contract with the International Broadcasting Network to star in a new superhero series. Mr. Smith, a virtual unknown, recently was reported to have fought Spider-Man himself to a standstill. Clicking the TV off, Pete starts shouting, giving the game away, reaffirming my belief that Silver Age Aunt May might just be a bit hard of hearing because this kid is constantly ranting and raving about his dual life as Spider-Man and she never seems to notice. Pete walks out of the living room and taking the first step onto the stair landing, tells May he's too tired to keep watching, so he's gonna say goodnight to her now. And May, thinking Pete's the softest thing since Peep's marshmallows, tells him it's good that he stopped watching, that some news stories can give a kid nightmares. In the final panel, his shoulders hunched as he climbs the stairs, Pete gives one final dark quip. Not much chance of that in my case. I only have them when I'm awake. A caption box closes the issue. Next-ish, the biggest surprise of the season awaits you. Enough said. And we're out. This is by far the funniest Spider-Man comic I've ever read. The beauty of comics is so much can be done in stills that you can just sit and admire when it comes to comedy. This issue proves that idea beautifully. When I tell you the guy with the face like hamburger meat saying people tell him he looks like Cary Grant made me snort and then laugh harder than I ever have reading a comic, I mean it. And I read Spidey religiously, so you gotta know I'm always laughing. Lee and Ditko were working hard in this one. Lee's comedic timing was on full display, and what a way to go out as far as art. And this, his final Amazing Spider-Man issue for the stunning, amazing, spectacular Steve Ditko. Before doing this podcast, I admit to having a great indifference to the art from this era. Not necessarily disliking it, more so feeling no connection to it, because I'd known the history up until the early 90s when I started reading myself, but not how well the art and story worked in tandem. Now. I'm sure we're going to appreciate the comics run of a one John Romita senior that helped solidify him as a comics legend. But Steve Ditko has become my favorite Spidey artist because he laid the foundation for so many of the visuals in the Spider-Man universe that make him great. The costume, that gorgeously designed red and blue that is so iconic, Spidey's only ditched it a handful of times throughout the years and never with any real permanence. The web shooters, the lipless face, the style of the Goldenrod Kid in the early years, and the villains. The man gave us Chameleon, Dr. Octopus, the Vulture, the Sandman, Mysterio, Craven, the Green Goblin, the Enforcers, the Big Man. He gave us Betty and Ned Leeds, Flash Thompson, Liz Allen, Harry Osborn, the Blonde Bombshell, Gwen Stacy, J. Jonah Jameson, and of course, our darling Aunt May. 
the art for the quintessential Spider-Man story? If this be my destiny, Steve Ditko, through the ether, I say to you, thank you, because so much of my life has been wrapped up in the stories and lore of the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens, and I can't help thinking that so much of your life was poured into him. As strange as this issue was, I think it was the perfect way to close out the first 40 chapters, counting annuals, of The Amazing Spider-Man. This issue was truly the most comic-y comic book of all. So one more time, thank you Stephen J. Ditko through the ether. Much love, much respect. As long as I live, I won't think there's anybody who did it better than you. And next week, one Legends era comes to a close and another's begins. And man, did John Romita Sr. come to play in the classic Spider-Man tale. How green was my goblin? Where we see Spidey's worst fear made real when he is unmasked by quite possibly his deadliest foe, the Green Goblin. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you sign up to patreon.com slash HSPP in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers, patrons have a vault filled with bonus episodes covering comic book stories from all over the multiverse of comic book universes. Next bonus episode, we're running through The Immortal Weapons, Volume 1, Number 4, Tiger's Beautiful Daughter. Question, what happens when an ancient truce is broken and your village is overrun by an invading force? Well, if you're Tiger's Beautiful Daughter, a woman who's never thrown a punch a day in her life, but dreams in 16-point kung fu type, you get tough and you get going. And if that ain't enough, a bonus story involving the Amadeus Beethoven of Fisticuffs, Daniel Rankai, the immortal Iron Fist, in The Caretakers. If you become a patron before ASM number 50, you receive a special thank you lapel pin for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in myfriendpete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com slash HSPP. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care. Give us and my please think of the world and be true to yourself. That dusty trails are calling, so there's no use stalling, but you know the tagline for the people with great power, baby. You gotta make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.